Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, January 16th. What a night on television for tuning in to see who won. You could choose the Emmy Awards on Fox, the NFL Playoff Game on ABC, or the Iowa caucuses on all the news channels. But ho-hum, there was little suspense in any of them, as it turned out, right? If you bet on the favorites, Succession and the Bear, Donald Trump, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, you knew you were coming out ahead by pretty early in the evening. In fact, if we learned anything from the Iowa caucuses— Maybe we learned that contrary to what we like to snarkily think, opinion polls and weather forecasts are both usually right. Like the polls predicted, Donald Trump won by 30 points. Like the weather service predicted, temperatures and wind chills were dangerously below zero. So turnout was lower than in 2016, but it was still about the same as in 2008 and 2012, which were also years with serious competition in the Republican presidential field. That was interesting. The basic numbers were that Trump got about 51% of the vote to 21% for DeSantis and 19% for Nikki Haley. Vivek Ramaswamy was in single digits. And one of the headlines from Iowa, don't know if you've seen this, is that Ramaswamy has now suspended his campaign. But despite Trump's record margin of victory for an Iowa caucus night, the Washington Post reminds us that 51% still means nearly half the Republican caucus-goers chose not to vote for Trump, despite his presumed dominance in the party. So what does that portend for the general election? We'll talk about what happened in Iowa and what comes next with Amber Phillips, who writes the Washington Post's daily politics newsletter called The Five-Minute Fix. And lucky for me, Amber's motto, according to her webpage, is no question about politics is too small or too dumb for this newsletter. So, Amber, always good to have you on to answer my dumb questions. Welcome back to WNYC. No, I love talking to you. Thank you, Brian. Can we say, first of all, that the major polls sometimes get things very wrong, but in general, if you're counting on polls being wrong as part of your political strategy, you do so at your peril? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, obviously, we polls are a snapshot in time, right? That's where they might get things wrong. Things could have changed from Friday uh, or over the weekend when the latest polls showed Trump winning Iowa to Monday when people actually voted. And that could happen in this the primaries and caucuses to come. But it would have to be a seismic shift in Republican politics for um, things to change and for a poll snapshot in time to to be inaccurate when it comes time for people to vote. And we didn't see that this first time uh, people voted in this 2024 presidential race. Right. And the dead-on accuracy of the polling, 30% margin, actually got me thinking that one thing that may have changed since 2016 when Trump was elected president, at that time, I think there were people lying to pollsters about their intention to vote for Trump because they felt a certain shame about preferring someone who came off to many people as a wannabe authoritarian, racist, sexist, even sexual assaulter, according to himself on the Access Hollywood tape. We remember that. But now that shame maybe is gone. Republican America largely embraces Trump 
in what others consider his increasingly threatening and hateful language and, and the sense of shame over backing someone who calls his political opponents vermin and says immigrants are poisoning our blood is gone. Do you see evidence of that change in your reporting? I do, yes. Um, now, I'll say when I talk to Republican strategists here in Washington, gosh, they wish they wish that um, Trump were not the nominee, even if some of them won't say it publicly, uh, and Republican lawmakers as well. But no, when it comes to the voters, I think this... Um, I think this community that Trump has created, it was epitomized by those white caps, if you saw them, uh, if you ever turned it, tuned in to see the Iowa caucus, you'd see these, the precinct captains um, for Trump, those, the, they were essentially there to talk about Trump and why you should support Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, they were party volunteers, had these white caps that the Trump campaign was handing out. And it was mm-hmm. it was this badge of honor to say, I'm a leader in my local community for Donald Trump. And I thought that really epitomized the difference between 2016 and 2020, um, and 2024, excuse me. And then the other thing I'll show is that there's this exit poll the Washington Post look, did, which is, do you think Joe Biden legitimately won the presidency in 2020? Um, Two thirds of Iowa's caucus goers said, no, I don't think yeah. he did. And yeah. so th- that just underscores that they they are not ashamed or afraid to talk about this community of Trump, even when it when it's uh, wrong and false. Yeah. And I guess it reflects a human tendency, maybe uh, to believe even demonstrably disproven lies from people you like or people you think are on your side. Right. Yep. I think that's right. I think I think. Community is the word I keep coming back to, Brian. I know Trump's critics, uh, when you call up them, will we'll say it's a cult. Uh, but this is this is something that Trump's opponents hoped, like DeSantis, transcended Trump and that he could sort of take over this community of Trump. But um, Trump himself is very much a leader of it. And, and I think it's it it is it's about being part of a community and their shared beliefs and facts are not just that Joe Biden didn't win, which of course is false, um, but that Donald Trump is the best person to lead them. And that's what we saw in Iowa, and it's what we should expect to see in the majority of states that are voting next. Somebody on MSNBC last night, and granted it was MSNBC, but somebody said a religion is where God tells you what God will do for you. A cult is when the leader tells you what you have to do for them. So for what it's worth, a little uh, commentary that's stuck in my brain. But maybe more newsworthy than the Iowa vote itself, along the lines we've been discussing, is the CBS News YouGov poll that came out Sunday that found 80% of Republicans nationally, 80%, agree with Trump's statement that immigrants entering the country illegally are poisoning the blood of the country. Now, just 20% of Democrats agreed with that, but 80% of Republicans. Do you have any take on what that finding means to those respondents? I mean, that's very different from simply saying we have too many migrants all at once for what the country can afford to settle, like the mayor of New York and other people say. The poisoning our blood seems like a racial or ethnic purity and supremacy sentiment just the way 
Hitler meant it when he used that phrase in his book Mein Kampf. Can you think of any other way to think of that, of that or that those 80% of Republicans who responded agreeing with a statement might be thinking of that? Uh, yeah, I actually, on Friday, before this poll came out, did talk to immigration experts and, and Republican strategists about this sentiment in the Republican Party, and I'm happy to talk about that. I first want to say, Brian, I think you're so smart to point out this poll and and Republican sentiment on immigration because it's it is defining why Republicans uh, are Republican and why they support Donald Trump over anyone else in this in this election. Um, it's what my colleagues freezing freezing their their bums off in Iowa heard from voters over and over again is like I'm nervous about the border. I've seen polls. Similarly, say this in Wisconsin. Obviously, these are states far away from the border. Um, and and Donald Trump mentioned it when he spoke at, at a local precinct uh, about, I think he said, similarly vile stuff, not quite poisoning the blood of this country, but they're coming from jails and, and just, just appearing to demonize these immigrants. So it's a huge part of Republican politics right now. And I think it could come to define the general election as well. What to make of it? First, there really is a border crisis. Uh, border crossings have been at or near record highs pretty much since Biden took office. I talked to um, an immigration rights advocate who said, we're just in an era of displacement and more migration period, climate change, economies crashing, COVID. This is all just out of Biden's control, uh, immigration advocates and Democrats argue, but there is a border crisis right now. The border has been a weak spot for Biden pretty much since he took office. Um, there's just were chaotic situations on the border and, um, and it policies have sometimes helped that and ease the border crossings. Sometimes his critics have argued have made it worse. And so I think Republicans like Trump smell blood in the water, if you will. And then finally, I've seen polls that Americans trust Republicans on the border more than Democrats right now. And immigration experts told me this could be explained by the fact that when the border is chaotic, Americans tend to want much stricter border policies. And who's the party that has really worn this cloak of being strict on the border? It's Republicans. And so all of that, I think, um, Trump is is very astutely reading these reading these undercurrents about the border and politics and migration, and leaning into it in a way that is like you bringing up comparisons to Hitler um, and and this community we, we've talked about where Republicans just want to be part of what Trump is talking about. It seems to be working on immigration as well as election denialism. Right. And people could think the border is out of control and think Republicans would be better at controlling it without thinking that racial thought, uh, that ethnic thought, that immigrants are poisoning our blood. However, we want to take that about intermarriage or just the percentage of who is in the American population these days. Um, so one could think that Republicans are better at controlling the border without having those hateful thoughts, I'll call them hateful, and, uh, and yet 80% of Republicans responding to that survey Brian in Randolph, New Jersey, wants to react to poisoning our blood. Brian, you're on WNYC. Hello. Hi, Brian. Thank you for taking my call. 
I think the country, Democrats in particular, and the Biden administration, his reelection efforts are making a huge mistake by focusing on this poisoning the blood of our country quip by Trump. Um, Trump doesn't know what he's talking about half the time. He doesn't put words together very articulately. But what Trump is clearly talking about is the fentanyl and other dangerous and illegal drugs coming across the border. Simple as that. Recognized by many Democrats, by many independents across the country. It has nothing to do with Nazi rhetoric. And continuing to pigeonhole that is just going to drive reasonable voters away. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Um, Well, he says the comparisons to, and I think it was a little clearer to our screener uh, when he said it's going to turn Democrats off. It's going to hurt the Democrats uh, if people keep comparing Trump to Hitler with the poisoning our blood. Uh, But of course, it's Democratic politicians largely who are jumping out front to make that comparison and point out that Hitler used that phrase in Mein Kampf as part of the run-up to staging the Holocaust. Um, And Trump claims he never read Mein Kampf. I think we can probably take him at his word about that. But the fact that he comes up with that same um, language spontaneously might be even more frightening Uh, But to the caller's argument that Trump wasn't referring to the immigrants themselves, but to the fentanyl that's coming across the border, is there any evidence for that, Amber? There's not. uh, There's not. Great question, Brian. I I fact-checked this because as a class suburban mom, I hear Republicans say, well, the fentanyl's coming across the border uh, from these illegal immigrants. It's coming to your communities that scares me. I perk up. I want to listen. Right. So, so the cool part about my job is I get to call experts yeah. and, fact and check fentanyl this. is coming across the border. Not that that's a non-problem. Right. Right. But the fact is it is coming across the border, but Republicans, these are just facts mislead when they blame illegal immigrants for this. Uh, I talked to Alex Norwatesh. He's a immigration analyst for the libertarian leaning Cato Institute. And he said in 2021, 86% of convicted fentanyl drug traffickers were U.S. citizens. So it's coming across the border. It's not right. from legal immigrants. It's being smuggled through legal ports of entry. So that's, that's an problem. interesting that's an interesting fact check. But but to the caller's specific point, because I don't want to misrepresent Trump, and I don't want to misrepresent anybody, so that includes Trump. Is he saying that that's because fentanyl is coming across the border, even if your fact check indicates that it's, you know, not mostly people entering illegally. Um, Is that what he meant by poison? They're they're poisoning our blood with fentanyl as opposed to with their ethnically different presence? I think we can pull up uh, other comments Trump has made about, about immigrants and migrants, and you piece them together, and fentanyl is one piece of the point he's making, but it's not the entire piece. Um, I'm actually doing it right now uh, to pull up exactly other things he said that that really align with with your theory, Brian, that he's right. talking and, about and we don't, ethnic. Yeah, we don't yeah. even have, uh, we, we, you know, you referenced before when he started 
his campaign on day one in 2015, down the escalator at Trump Tower, the famous moment, and he started right in on... Right, bringing you know, drugs, crime. Right, and some of them are good people. Um, and one more thing on this line of conversation. I mean, Ramaswamy has now dropped out. And another related newsworthy reality from Iowa though from a focus group of one voter. I don't know if you saw this NBC News clip, but a voter, I guess a Ramaswamy supporter, admitted to Ramaswamy's wife in an NBC News segment, it was all on video, talking directly to his wife, that the most common questions this voter was getting about Ramaswamy uh, from other Republicans she knew ahead of the caucuses were about his dark skin and his religion. Yeah, I I didn't see that. Um, I think it's interesting to step back and see that the Republicans did have one of their more most diverse primaries they've ever had. You, Ramaswamy, you had Nikki Haley, a woman person of color. Um, who else am I missing? It, but <laughs> those are the big ones. Well, the two of them. I mean, earlier the Tim Scott, but oh, Tim Scott. That's right. Thank you. Although he dropped out and, and Ramaswamy has dropped out and um, Nikki Haley has yet to coalesce to be a major opponent against Trump. But I think it's just interesting that you did have some of the most diverse Republican presidential candidates we've ever had. And yet the the broader Republican conversation is about race and, and whether immigrants are... Um, I found another Trump quote I'll share, loading up classes with children that don't speak the language or they, they don't support our religion, he said. It's just, it's a, so uh, white supremacist loaded. And I don't know how candidates like Ramaswamy or, or Nikki Haley or Tim Scott or, or or anyone else who doesn't believe with that kind of narrative talk about it. So many political analysts will say, I'm sure you will say, Iowa is not too indicative, especially a one-party caucus in Iowa, not too indicative of the nation as a whole. Uh, it's a small state. It's a disproportionately rural state. It's an overwhelmingly white state compared to the nation as a whole. So take it as with a grain of salt or many grains of salt as a bellwether for what might come in November. A few more minutes with Amber Phillips, who writes The Five-Minute Fix politics newsletter for the Washington Post on the morning after the Iowa caucuses. Let's just talk uh, briefly, which I think was supposed to be the headline, about DeSantis and Haley. They both spun last night's results as positive for them, despite being only around 20 percent apiece. And for Haley, despite not having beaten DeSantis, as she was hoping to do, and come in at least second, how do you see the implications for either of them? Yeah, even though they both spun it as positive for them, you're right, Brian, it's really positive for Trump because Haley was hoping to coalesce as the anti-Trump candidate and then hope he stumbles and take him down. But, um, and she has a couple states coming up that are voting New Hampshire, which is more anti-Trump-ish than Iowa, and then South Carolina, her home state, even though she's behind the polls. Um, There's like a small world in which that happens for her, but it would require DeSantis dropping out. And... DeSantis has shown no indication of that because he did come in second at Iowa, which which was behind the scenes his campaign's goal. And so what it means is they fight 
and split the anti-Trump coalition. And Trump has the potential to do what his campaign has predicted, which is steamroll through uh, the next couple of states, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, and then Super Tuesday in early March, even though the January 6th trial is slated to start, win big there. And then his campaign hopes he locks up the nomination um, by March. And time is has probably already run out, but is really running out for Nikki Haley to have any chance to overtake Trump. And, and it required probably her plan for DeSantis to drop out after Iowa. And that didn't happen. Yeah. And DeSantis is skipping New Hampshire and going right to state number three to campaign, which is Haley's home state of South Carolina. And Haley may run into a brick wall at home. She may do well in New Hampshire, but then if she loses to Trump badly in South Carolina, presumably not to DeSantis, but to Trump, um, where the polls show him way ahead of her, despite the fact that she was governor there. Is that it? That could be soon. Right. I, I think um, it's it, it would be impossible for Haley to make the argument she should continue the campaign. Um, she could do well in New Hampshire, but if she can't win in her home state, granted, she last ran there for governor 10 years ago. Um, if she can't do that, then it would be very difficult, Republican strategists I talked to say, for her to continue the campaign. And then I don't know where DeSantis's wall is. Where does he hit it? Um, he got a little bit of a lifeline coming in second in Iowa. Like you said, he's not expected to do well in New Hampshire, where there, there are less evangelical voters, and he's just a little more, a little more skeptical of that Trump-type persona that he and Trump have. But I don't know where his wall is and what happens to him. Um, but for Nikki Haley, it's probably South Carolina. Smart, eloquent writer of the Daily Politics newsletter from the Washington Post, The Five-Minute Fix, which comes out in the afternoon, by the way, usually like late afternoon, right? Yes, exactly. Late afternoon. Um, yeah, the goal is just to, I follow politics all day and talk to experts just like Brian does and, and run it down for you in a real quick newsletter so you don't have to. Thanks, Amber. Thank you, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.